Craft Beer Radio presents the 2012 Saver Salons. For a fifth year, we recorded the salons at Saver. This year, there were 18 in all, 6 educational salons and 12 private tasting salons. You can find all the Saver podcasts, including the ones from the past five years, on our website at craftbeerradio.com. The first educational salon on Friday was Terra Incognita. Named after the Saver commemorative beer, the salon features Sierra Nevada and Boulevard Brewing Company, the brewers who collaborated on the beer. They discuss the brewing of the beer and pair it with food indigenous to each brewery's location. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Saver and welcome to this educational salon where you'll have an opportunity to learn more about the world of craft beer from the brewers themselves. My name's Steve Broad. I'm the brewmaster for Free State Brewing Company in Lawrence, Kansas, and I'll be your moderator for tonight's salon. Savor now in its fifth year and well-established as one of America's premier beer and food events is brought to you by the Brewers Association, the national nonprofit trade association representing small and independent craft brewers. I serve on the board of directors for the Brewers Association and also serve as the chair of the event committee, which assists in the production of Savor and of the Great American Beer Festival, another of America's premier craft events held in Denver, Colorado in early October of this year. The BA also publishes craftbeer.com, which is your best source of information about these events and about the wider world of American craft beer. In addition to the efforts of the association's volunteers, its incredible staff, you and the small independent brewers who are serving in the Great Hall tonight, events like Savor are made possible by another group of supporters who deserve some special recognition. And they are the Reyes Beverage Group, Abita Brewing Company, Brewery Omegang, Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, Sam Adams, craftbeer.com, Allagash Brewing Company, Boulevard Brewing Company, The Brooklyn Brewery, Devil's Backbone Brewing Company, Flying Dog Ales, Full Sail Brewing Company, New Belgium Brewing Company, do you see a theme here, uh, Rogue Ales, Saranac, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Brewer Supply Group, Draft Magazine, GreatBrewers.com, National Beer Wholesalers Association, Oak Beverages, and Spiegel Isle Providers of the Glassware that we'll be drinking out of this evening. And if you miss something that one of our speakers says tonight, all of the Saver Salons are recorded for podcast listening by craftbeerradio.com, giving you the opportunity to hear it all again. When the opportunity for questions arises, um, we'll try to make sure that we uh, get the questions asked back so your question will live on in the program. Tonight, when you leave Saver, you'll be sent off with a special <coughs> bottle of beer to enjoy. This year's beer, Terra Incognita, is a collaboration between the Boulevard Brewing Company in Kansas City, Missouri, and the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company in Chico, California, and soon coming to Ashland, North Carolina. It is my pleasure to introduce the owners and brewers from these two leading craft breweries to discuss the beer and the journey to its creation. It's a distinct pleasure to introduce my friends and neighbors from just down the road in Kansas City, Missouri, the Boulevard Brewing Company has enjoyed 22 years as Kansas City's hometown beer. And they have spread their hometown flavors to 24 states and, most recently, the District of Columbia as well. Their year-round lineup of fresh craft beers is complemented by an ever-growing set of seasonal beers and their innovative smokestack series. Tonight, you will hear from President and Founder John McDonald 
and brewmaster Stephen Powells. It's an equal pleasure to introduce the pioneers and longtime leaders in craft brewing, the owner and brewers from the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. When Ken Grossman brewed the first batch of Sierra Nevada in late 1980, the craft beer landscape was pretty sparse. Their first beer, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, was destined to be a landmark American craft beer and the yardstick next to which aspiring American pale ales stood to be measured. Their success has inspired many of the craft brewers who have populated the renaissance in craft brewing since then. Tonight, we will hear from owner and president Ken Grossman, brewmaster Steve Dressler, and uh, the research and development brewer Scott Jennings, who will soon be moving into the role of brewmaster for Sierra's new Ashland, North Carolina brewery. Please join me in welcoming the collaborators. So it's a great pleasure to be here tonight. Um, when the uh, organizers of, uh, of, the, of the event asked us to collaborate on a beer, we were very honored. Um, John and I are old friends. We've uh, known each other pretty much since John started his brewery. Uh, we've got a, a lot of respect for each other's breweries and, and for the beers that they produce. Um, I'm also on the board of the Brewers Association, and I've been uh, coming to Saver. I was uh, on the board when we decided to have this event out here, and we really thought that we wanted to do something different than the GABF. We wanted to really try to feature food and beer rather than just uh, sampling beer like's done at the GABF, which is great, but uh, to, to try to change the tone a little bit and have it be a, a little bit more upscale event that, that really has a, a smaller feel that allows the brewery owners and brewers to uh, intermingle and talk with the, the uh, customers here to uh, explain what we're doing, talk about the beers. Um, so one of the things we tried to do is to ensure that uh, the principals and brewers from each of the breweries showed up at this event so that there would be uh, some connection with our consumers. Um, so t today we have uh, a collabor collaboration beer, which we've done a few of, and John, I know, has done a few of. Um, but this is one that was a bit unique for us, and it's only going to be available really at this event uh, tonight and tomorrow. And I think we're going to have a few other bottles around, but it's a very, very limited release. And it was a, uh, a collaboration of ideas. We wanted to take something from Chico and, and what we do in, in Chico uh, and meld it with uh, uh, what Boulevard does out there. So uh, we produced the, the, the wort. We brewed the, uh, the wort for this beer. Um, it was shipped out to Boulevard, and then they fermented it, barrel-aged it, um, added a uh, special yeast strain that we'll talk about uh, uh, quite a bit further tonight. Uh, that imparts quite a, a unique character. So there were a number of wooden barrels of this brewed and then sampled and then blended. So it was a truly collaborative effort. Um, Steve and, and Scott came out to the brewery and, and worked on uh, tasting and blending the barrels um, with, the, with the folks out at Boulevard. So I'll pass it on at this point, and we'll be, be back to chat later. Yeah, um, you know, it's been an interesting uh, collaboration, a little different than we've done two before. We did one with uh, Orval, John Marie Rock, which was an interesting thing, and then we did something with the shoots. And uh, I think this one was, well, really fun in the fact that we weren't going to sell it, so it was uh, just kind of crazy ideas. And I think uh, we had a lot of different ideas, but the, the main thing is sort of the, uh, uh, the, the really the, 
the trail, what is it, the, uh, California. the California Trail started in Kansas City and ended up in California. And I think that had a lot to do with it. And really, this beer doesn't have a style, but um, we want it to be very earthy and really food food friendly because we are, you're going to you're going to get a try this with uh, a couple different uh, food items. I think uh, oysters from mm -hmm. uh, the West Coast, and uh, of course in Kansas City uh, we don't have anything like that, so we're we're uh, doing burn ends. So uh, you should enjoy both of them. But anyway, it's been a really fun process, and um, and I think uh, I'm going to let Stephen and, and Steve and, and the brewers really talk about the rest of it. Okay. Can you hear me without microphone, or should I? <laughs> microphone? Okay. <clears throat> All right. Recording, right? Um, so how, how this project came around is that um, we were here last year. Well, John has been here a couple of years, and so I have the folks from Sierra Nevada. But uh, after the last salon, or last session last year, uh, Julie and I had a beer with some of the organizers, and we, thought, like, we talked to them like how great this event was and that we wanted to come back. But we didn't want to be part of the lottery. And they're like, well, that's not going to happen. You'll have to go through the lottery unless you want to make the beer that, uh, like, uh, flour was made last year. And we're like, well, that's not a bad idea. So we kind of tinkered around who to do this collaboration with, and I have huge... Uh, respect for Sierra Nevada, and um, so I called Ken. Uh, would you? I was shaking like that when I called him. Um, it's like, Ken, are you are you interested in doing that? And and to my surprise, he's like, Yeah, sure, let's do it. And uh, so that was the start of this collaboration. And um, it took a couple of uh, conference calls back and forward to kind of design the beer and come up with the idea. And I remember one of the first questions was like, So uh, what what kind of style are we going to make? And um, to make a long story short, we kind of came up with the idea to connect Missouri or Kansas City with California, and it's called California Trail, and uh, to make a beer that was just earthy. Um, and that was basically the beginning, uh, try to make an earthy beer. Well, I mean, that's easier said than done, but uh, I think in the end what we came up with was, was very interesting. So what we decided on doing from the get-go was let's make this a true collaboration. So. Um, the, uh, Scott at Sierra Nevada made a portion of the beer, like half of the beer, and then we made half of the beer. So maybe, Scott, you can explain what you did. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we we had kind of had a really vague, I guess, notion of what uh, characteristics we would like to have in this finished beer. Uh, so the base uh, beer, we wanted it to be, um, yeah, pretty, pretty broad, uh, very... Um, uh, like a, like a like a blank slate. Uh, we we needed a dark color. Um, we wanted it to be quite dry, uh, and we didn't want it to be extremely high in uh, hop character. And we're kind of uh, guilty of doing uh, a whole lot of hopping in most of the beers that we do, but in this case, uh, we wanted it to be uh, a little bit more uh, suited to barrel um, aging. And so the grist is, is very simplistic. It's just pale malt and a little bit of black malt. And then we used uh, some Belgian candy sugar, dark candy sugar, to uh, give some more fermentables. And uh, that also helps lighten the body. Uh, and the hops were Bravo for bittering. The uh, finishing hops were Styrian Goldings. Uh, and the IBUs are only 32, so it's pretty moderately hopped. Uh, you won't find hop aroma. 
I'd be surprised if you do. <laughs> hmm. uh, let's see. So we made made the wart, um, and uh, the th that was shipped out to Stephen. And fermentation was done with uh, our uh, kind of house uh, ale yeast here in Nevada yeast, and then uh, secondary was uh, West Mall yeast to finish it off. Uh, but then some magic happened in the barrels afterwards, and that being the defining, say, set of characteristics of the beer, uh, that's really what, what defined it. Uh, maybe Stephen can give some more details. We did put that in uh, a number of different barrels. So uh, we wanted to kind of um, get both breweries or where they, were where they were located and get both of those characters in the beer. So when you think about Missouri or think about Boulevard, what we have is a lot of wheat fields. We, we make a lot of wheat beer. So we, our portion of the beer was brewed with about 60% wheat. Um, and then um, if you think about Sierra Nevada, you think about hoppy beers, but their beer was going to, in, was going to be aged in barrels because Missouri is one of the largest producers of barrels. I don't know if you know that. There's a lot of ogron in southern Missouri in the Ozarks, and uh, there's a, lot of, a couple of really big barrel manufacturers. So what we did is when the beer was, was, when the wort was fermented from Sierra Nevada, we put it in barrels. And we have a whole range of different barrels that we used. We had 21 of them. Um, luckily, I brought my notes. Um, there's some, uh, there was about um, nine whiskey barrels uh, Two of them were new whiskey barrels. Some of them were used. Um, I don't know if you know the beer bourbon barrel quad that we make, or you might see it in the stores here maybe in a couple of years or so, or in the future. Uh, but we used some of those. And then we, we also make a little bit of wine at the brewery. And um, so we used some uh, barrels that had wine previously with them in them. And then there were two new barrels also. So we wanted some oak, but we didn't really want to overdo the oak. Um, so that was the portion. That beer, the beer aged for about two months in those barrels, and then Steve and Scott and, uh, uh, came out to do a tasting and to kind of select which barrels that we wanted to use. And out of the 21, only 12 made it. Um, we had really, really bad yield, I guess. Um, but uh, it, was, it was very, we were looking for specific flavors, and um, some of them really didn't have enough, enough character that would bring anything to the beer. Uh, actually, when I was when the beer was about three weeks in the barrel, I, I tasted it with some of my crew, and uh, we were kind of disappointed in the oak flavor, so we, we put some oak spirals and oak chips in some of the barrels also, just to get more oak flavor out of it. Um, then we brewed our portion, like I said, with 60% uh, wheat, and then we heavily dry hopped with it, East Kent Goldings. Um, still thinking about the idea, how can we get earthiness in the beer? East Kent Goldings have this nice, earthy flavor, and that's Steve who told me to do that. So I learned a lot from this project. Um, but also, you know, the wood brings some earthiness, and then um, uh, also the black, some of the black malt gives it a nice uh, kind of roasty, earthy roastiness. Um, so we blended the beer, and then we put it in a bottle, and then uh, what we did then was we added a little bit of Brettanomyces because we like those critters. They make great flavors. Um, and um, in the end, uh, when we came up with the name Terra Incognita, uh, we wanted to make something that was an unknown road and, uh, or unknown land and basically um, bringing it back to what's this beer going to be like. Well, we put the bread in it and we had no idea. So what you have here today is, is the draft version. There's only about 20 kegs of this and they're all for this event. 
Um, and the bottle beer after bottle conditioning with Brettanomyces and, and a champagne yeast, we put it, uh, we store it cold. So if you take your bottle home tonight, it, there will not be a lot of Brettanomyces in it. But if you store it warm, the Brettanomyces will develop and it'll be an unknown land uh, when you open it. Uh, that was the whole idea behind it. So. Hey, Stephen, maybe now, I think we've got, everybody's food is out uh, for the first round. Maybe one of the guys from Sierra, since this is sort of your, your area of the country, want to talk about how you chose the, uh, you know, the, the, the blend of the beer and this uh, uh, oyster to go with it? Well, we did, we wanted to do something uh, uh, real indigenous to our area. So the oysters are a very local family farm, I believe, uh, close to the coast, outside of, close to Chico. Um, the earthiness um, and there's some tart sourness a little bit in, uh, in, in the beer, a really nice tartness, and we thought that would go well with that kind of fresh, briny uh, ocean uh, type effect uh, from the oyster. So see how it goes. Um, so doing a beer like this, uh, uh, Stephen talked a bit about uh, you know, the collaboration, the experience, and, and a, a lot of the reasons why brewers are collaborating today, and it's something that was pretty unheard of just a few years ago. Um, but again, brewers who have mutual respect for each other appreciate the, the styles of beer they're brewing and the unique things that they bring to, to uh, their breweries. Uh, it allows us to talk about brewing, to experiment with brewing, and to, to really build on each other's ideas of, uh, of how to build a completely different beer maybe that's coming from two different places and, and so we've done a couple of them now and, and this has been one of the more fun ones to, to be involved with. Um, Stephen talked a bit about uh, uh, Brett or the, the yeast that was added at, at bottle conditioning. It's a, uh, a strain of yeast that's typically uh, not favored by most uh, uh, breweries and uh, certainly not wineries in general. Uh, it's uh, a yeast that can be in the wood and so a lot of the, the famous French wines actually are plagued with Brett in the wineries. Um, it's a very hard yeast to, to kill. It works very, very slowly and so uh, Stephen mentioned that when the beer uh, leaves here tonight or tomorrow in the bottle, um, it won't have a lot of this character yet, but it, the yeast will, will keep feeding on the sugars for months and years even, and continue to change and evolve as it, uh, as it does its work in the bottle. Um, it has a, a unique set of uh, flavor attributes. Uh, some refer to it as a horse blanket um, kind of aroma. It's uh, uh, pretty distinctive, and um, as the beer matures with the bright yeast in it, it'll go through uh, sort of awkward phases where it might not be that pleasant of an aroma, and then maybe a few months later it'll be a wonderful uh, complex aroma. So it's one of those things that you can never exactly predict how it's going to turn out. Um, and by adding a small dose of it at packaging and keeping it cold, it, it won't do much. But again, as it warms, it'll come back to life and slowly start to, uh, working on some of the sugars, more complex sugars that are in the beer. So it adds a, a real twist. We had never used it before. Uh, we did uh, a, a special batch of beer with uh, Russian River a few months back, actually six months back, where we used it for the first time, and this was the second time that we've really been involved with the Brett Project. So it, it's a, a whole new experience for us and a fun, a fun world. Hopefully it won't get out of control. 
Yeah, you know, it's real interesting. I think Sierra Nevada does a little bit of wood aging, and we're embracing it. I think we have, like, what, a 1,000 wooden barrels now of different types in our brewery. And, and it's interesting because I think, um, you know, as a brewer, we, we're very uh, concerned about cleanliness and, uh, you know, keeping the brewery clean and making sure our beers are clean and right. And um, so you start messing around with this, the wood part of it, and it's really... Uh, for me, a really uh, kind of a light bulb went off when I walk into our wood cellars, and and you sort of realize that this is a really old way of making beer. You know, certainly a, a hundred or 150 years ago, all beer would have been spent some time in a wood barrel, as most things did. And uh, it occurred to me that there were probably there's always three outcomes when you basically put beer in a wood barrel. You either end up with beer. And uh, that's good. You can sell it. Everybody, everybody's happy. And then because of these bugs that, you know, can be in the wood, you end up with something even better than beer. And that you might want to either sell to the king for a lot more money or keep yourself. And, uh, of course, the other thing is it could turn into vinegar. And, you know, 150 years ago, people needed to pickle their beets and pig's feet. And so that was all good, too. So... I think we're probably going to start a, a little vinegar line here soon. So anyway, but it's really an interesting thing. And then you, you imagine 150 years ago, they didn't know what they were doing. And you apply uh, the science that, that these guys bring to the table. And it's a pretty interesting thing going on in the American beer industry right now. Um, uh, just the experimentation. And uh, I think we're doing a lot of catching up in the beer industry that the wine industry kind of got ahead of us. And I think in the last 10 or 15 years, you see a lot of breweries like ours in Sierra Nevada and a lot of others doing just really, really interesting things. We've been playing around quite a bit uh, at our brewery with barrels, not quite on that scale. And to speak to what John said, uh, you know, when we're going through to blend our barrels together to do uh, packaging, we'll taste each one individually. And, and you find some really uh, interesting flavor effects in the different barrels. And We'll approve the ones that we want to put together for a blend, and every once in a while you'll come across something that's uh, one or two barrels that are slightly more unique. And what we've tended to do is kind of set those off to the side for a special project and see, uh, see if we can't do something a little bit more rare and different with those. Uh, when we tasted all the barrels in Stephen's cellar um, that day, it was a phenomenal task. I mean, we went individually from barrel to barrel as a group, uh, and selected the ones with the flavor attributes and characters that we were really looking for um, in this beer. Uh, we then had to blend those together and retaste them on proportion uh, and, and look at what that part of uh, the beer was going to be. And then we yet again had to uh, serial, serial dilute uh, the two beers together and... Um, come up with uh, the, the final final product, the final beverage. And I think it took us four hours uh, that afternoon working uh, as a group. It was a lot harder than it sounds. Uh, it, was, it, was also a, it was also a lot more fun than I'm probably making it sound. And so, uh, but it was for me, uh, I'd never gone through an exercise like that before. It was, uh, it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, when we do wood-aged beers, it's simply that uh, component uh, in the final beer. Uh, but to put uh, all the different barrels together with um, a separate beer was fascinating. It was uh, 
very creative, a uh, lot of good conversation, um, great bringing descriptors out into the table. It was one of the more creative things, uh, afternoons, uh, that I've had uh, in my career. It was absolutely fantastic to do. I just want to talk a little bit about the sourness in this beer also, um, and also about the sparing, which I think is just fantastic. Um, when you think about beer and you think about the flavor profile that you can have, this is an educational salon, right? So there's, um, you can only get about four flavors or tastes in your, in, on your tongue, on your mouth. You get sweetness, sourness, uh, bitter, salty, and then umami if you'd like. Um, we as brewers, one that we really can't play with is, is salt. We can't, there's some beers like Goose that has a little bit of salt in it, but it's, usually it's like the missing link in beer to get all your taste buds kind of really popping. Um, so when I had this oyster and then I take a sip of, a sip of this beer, it, to me, all the, the flavors were just more exploding. Um, so I thought that was really, really cool about you know, this, this pairing. Um, the sourness, there's some Brettanomyces strains that make just a little bit more sourness than others. Um, the one that we use in this case is the one that we normally use in, in some of our beers, uh, like a Saison Brett. And again, acidity is something that's uh, not really new for the crab brewers. Uh, it's certainly not new for Belgian brewers and some German brewers. Uh, but sourness just adds another dimension to beer. Um, and I'm just really happy how this beer turned out with this slight acidity. It just, it's, it gives like a, a hint of refreshness. Um, and while this beer is about 8% alcohol, it sure does, to me it doesn't drink like an 8% alcohol beer. I can feel it, but I can't, you know. <laughs> it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't act like an 8% alcohol beer, I guess. Yeah, I did want to... Before, before we get on to the next pairing, any questions from, the, from you on uh, how you think it went or uh, good pairing? Yeah. Um, when the, most of the beers that we've played with are, are relatively heavy malt-based beers, uh, a lot of dark malts, uh, black roasted and chocolates, um, not not heavily hopped from an aromatic point of view. They'll have some good bitterness to them. Um, you want to have uh, some nice high alcohols. Uh, during that aging process, the hops are going to be the first thing to go away anyway, the aromatic part of the hops. Um, the alcohol and a good bitterness level can, to a certain extent, uh, work as an antimicrobial uh, on your behalf. Um, obviously, there are certain things uh, that we've talked about here that uh, nothing will really work uh, against uh, some of the Britannomyces particularly. Um, but that gives you a little bit uh, uh, of protection from uh, microbial issues. Uh, when we first got into barrel-aged products, uh, beers, we were somewhat naive in all honesty in what we were looking at um, downstream when we wanted to package those. And uh, for the most part, when we first started, they were these beers that I'm describing, uh, very strong, very robust uh, beers. And we, and we really didn't um, have much of an issue. Uh, we then started playing with uh, our Ovila Belgian Double that we released uh, last year. Uh, and I wanted to do those in red wine barrels, uh, and that was where we f came to realize that 
the red wine barrels and, and particularly mated with that beer uh, was going to give us some issues with uh, bacteria, um, particularly Britannomyces and some lactics and whatnot. And so we've kind of put that uh, product on hold. Um, this beer kind of fits that mold. Um, and it doesn't have a lot of internal protection from the formulation of the beer. Uh, and so that's uh, one of the reasons we wanted to, we did that part over at, at Boulevard because they have much better capability of working uh, within those, uh, that range. Yeah, we um, went into the design process of this beer obviously knowing and intending that it would be uh, really particularly well suited for uh, pairing with, with lots of different foods. Um, and then just one comment to Stevens point about the tartness. Um, you know, you, you might notice that it gives you a, a kind of a, a palate cleansing effect, which is really quite amazing. Uh, you, can, uh, you can pair it with, with all kinds of things. Uh, I thought that oyster was fantastic with this. Anybody agree? It's pretty good. Pretty, pretty amazing. Um, and the other thing that, that really helps with that was uh, the dryness. So the beer, it doesn't have a residual sweetness to it. Um, that, to me, also, uh, this is just me, but that, that gives uh, uh, a, little, a little room for, um, uh, you know, pairing it with, with all kinds of different things. You know, it, uh, it doesn't dominate. Uh, it, it meshes together with what you, what you pair together. Uh, and then to, back to your question about the barrels. Uh, so we knew that the... the uh, uh, certain qualities of the uh, uh, barrels, the oakiness, you know, uh, subtle wine uh, notes, different sort of fruit components that you'll get from the different wine barrels. Uh, and um, if you can tease it out of there, a little bit of, you know, bourbon or whiskey notes in there as well. Um, you, we really wanted that to come through and be pretty, pretty evident. So in that regard, we didn't want the base beer to be too... Um, uh, to, ha to be too, too powerful, I guess, in terms of uh, one flavor or another, because uh, it was really about the, uh, the fermentation flavors and the barrel flavors. You know, my only problem with the uh, food pairing on that beer was that I didn't have a dozen oysters yeah. to eat myself. <laughs> so if anybody doesn't like their oysters out yeah. there, uh, <laughs> I'd be glad to take them off your hands. Um, you know... Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the second pairing here with the, uh, with the burn ends. First of all, I've got to ask, how many people have ever been to Kansas City that are in the crowd? Yeah, quite a few people. Uh, so did you try some barbecue when you were in Kansas City? Yeah. You know, it's funny. If you live there, you really get sick of barbecue because every time somebody wants to come uh, to Kansas City, they all, all they want to do is eat barbecue. And... Uh, where I really like barbecue, if you eat it all the time, it's uh, it's a little hard to take. But anyway, uh, this is uh, masterpiece. Bar is this uh, case? case is oh, this is uh, actually uh, this is Oklahoma Joe's barbecue, which is in Kansas City. But I don't know why they called it Oklahoma Joe's, and it's a fairly new barbecue joint. We have hundreds of them, literally, and. Um, uh, <clears throat> You know, it's interesting that recently Anthony Bourdain did a thing on Kansas City barbecue where he goes all over Kansas City eating all these different uh, uh, barbecue places. And in Kansas City, every barbecue is known for maybe one or two things. You know, so you know, like you go to 
one place just for the ribs, and you go to another place for the beef ribs, and you go to another place for the burnt ends. But this is probably uh, definitely one of the top barbecue joints in Kansas City. And, uh, and we thought, you know, I think, uh, it's, well, I, I guess it's kind of a surf and turf thing we've done, actually. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and I think the, you know, the acidity in the beer also with, you know, eating, uh, you know, uh, ribs, which are fatty, greasy, really good for you. Uh, you know, really is a great combination because of the, it kind of cuts through and uh, and uh, I think really makes a lot of sense. Stephen, I want to eat my ribs. No, <laughs> I think it's um, it's pretty amazing too. The the barbecue sauce has just a hint of sweetness mm -hmm. to it, and that is great with the beer. I think uh, a great combination. To me, it brings the malt out a lot more with this pairing than it did with the uh, with the oyster. Yeah, I was just going to make that comment uh, between these two, and it's one of the things that we found fascinating about this beer uh, as we were drinking it and with different foods. I mean, depending on what you shared it with, paired it with, uh, different aspects of the complexity of, of the beer would come out. And uh, I totally agree, the saltiness uh, of the oyster really enhanced the Brett character for me, and more of that dryness uh, and those those types of flavors. Uh, this really brings out the malt and a little bit more of the richness and the earthiness uh, of the beer. It's, it's great. Um, it was a lot of fun when we were working uh, with the chef, and we, and we would find uh, the same thing uh, with the foods that we're going to be serving um, at our booth, that depending on what you paired it with, and uh, you, you sense that you were almost drinking two different beers, um, which speaks so well to the complexity of what you have in front of you. Any other comments on the this pairing? Like it? Yeah. <laughs> I love how the oyster it almost gave you that land salt kind of like the kind of stuff that's mine when you first took it. You got that first from the oyster that came right out. And uh, with the uh, barbecue it brought out that smoke character, which mm -hmm. you don't have in here. Mm -hmm. So it made that pop at the first initial impression. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you do that on a regular basis, but I sure don't. Um, and, and I think, um, like Steve said, it kind of adds to the complexity of this beer. If you, if you taste the beer, there's, there's a malt character. There's a little bit of roast character, even though we try to avoid it as much as possible because it overwhelms really quick. There's a, there's a layer of oak, and there's a layer of a little bit of bourbon even in there, or whiskey. And there's the bread in it. And... I disagree with what Scott said. I think there is some hop character, too. I think that East, it was East Kent Goldings. We, we put two pounds per barrel of East Kent Goldings in, in there. So it was pretty, pretty high, highly dry hopped. And, and I think it comes through, not with any, any of these pairings, because it kind of it point at different aspects of this beer. Uh, maybe we should have done a third pairing to get the hops out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're warming up. There, uh, characters changing a lot too, just with mm -hmm. the the change in temperature of the beer sitting here. Mm -hmm. 
Any other questions from uh, from you guys? Did you guys talk about how you got? You said you made the you made the word at Sierra, and then you fermented it at Boulevard. Yep. Well, how, how how did that how did that work? Getting all that work process? shipping shipped in kegs. Shipped in kegs. Yep. Yeah. Quickly. Oh, that's a secret. <laughs> I think we drank it. <laughs> yeah, you know, interesting, um, uh, an old brewer in Kansas City, uh, a guy named Bob Mulebach, or Bob Workowitz, who uh, we named a beer after. He was an old brewer that uh, uh, came to the brewery, and, and he had been a uh, brewer his whole life, and really interesting guy. But he told me uh, some really interesting stories about breweries, how they got through Prohibition, and one of the ways they got through Prohibition is that they would put beer in kegs and then they would put a label on them and they would say, you know, do not put this in a tub of water at 72 degrees, do not add yeast, do not do all these things. And basically the, or it may create a higher level of alcohol that is, you know, is forbidden by the, the federal government. So they basically, in a, in a warning, they actually gave everyone the recipe of how to make beer at home. And they would sell work to people to try to keep their doors open. So I think it's a kind of an interesting story. John, you want to talk a bit about the label and the artwork and the hand printing? And yeah, I, I would. Uh, you know, there's uh, some coasters, and you guys are all welcome to take those coasters home with you. Um, there's a local guy uh, just down the street from the brewery uh, named Brady Vest, and he, uh, you know, went to art school, and, and actually one of the few, I also went to art school, but uh, I had to make a living uh, making beer, so, but uh, he's a really talented guy, and so all of these, all of the labels you'll get on your, uh, these are the labels of the beer bottles, and he hand printed every one of these. So he has a company called Hammer Press, and, uh, I mean, it's literally a real uh, printing press that he prints on. And all of these coasters and all of the labels were made by Brady. And I think they're really, I think he really captured a lot of what we were trying to do with the beer, which I think is really a neat thing. It's sort of a, it has some earthiness to it. I don't know, it feels a lot like kind of California and, and, and the Midwest all at the same time. So I think he did a great job on these labels. <clears throat> any, any more questions? Uh, we could we would like a round of burn dance again. <laughs> when Steve and Scott came out in, to Kansas City, um, of course they wanted to have barbecue, right? And they, so we ended up at another place called Jack Stack. And um, uh, the next morning, I pick them up at the at the brewery at, to go to work at the brewery and come taste beer, and they both go like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So yeah, eat eat barbecue in moderation. Yeah. I learned that. I, I was well, very uncomfortable uh, for most of, of the next morning, um, but the food was so good I couldn't control myself. Uh, same with some of these beers. And I was curious too is why we got like six or seven Burnens and I only got one oyster. <laughs> you know, I have to say that. Uh, so they came out to Kansas City to kind of blend the beer, and I, I didn't go to lunch with them, but. Um, 
Anyway, Steve, we were out in Chico to kind of finish up some stuff for this event, uh, some filming things, and we were drinking the beer, and uh, I think it's something a little bit of press, I guess, for the BA and, and, and this event. And during the day, we were filming all this stuff, and so we were opening these bottles of beer and drinking them, and, and uh, the chef was bringing, uh, Adam was bringing um, all kinds of stuff for us to try, you know, cheese and and uh, homemade sausages, and, and that's kind of where we got the idea for the, the oysters. But then that night, uh, Steve took us out to a few uh, bars in Chico, and they, they were pretty interesting. And I realized we had taken him to the wrong, um, to the wrong uh, barbecue joints in Kansas City. I think he probably would have been a little more comfortable in like a place like Arthur Bryant's. <laughs> so the next time, Steve, you come out, we're going to take you to uh, a few of the... Uh, seedier type uh, <laughs> barbecue joints. I did my best to entertain. You know, I'm, it's, it, it, it was tough, uh, but uh, we, we, we had a, a good time that evening. Uh, yeah, when we worked on the food and beer pairing that day, that was another uh, arduous thing. I think by the time uh, we got to lunch, or we, we went through lunch, and then we were doing uh, some of the food work in the afternoon, I think we popped most of two cases of beer. Um, we shared some of it. Um, but it was that, that again. That was a fantastic day. Uh, as you can tell, we're all quite uh, good friends up here, and so sharing uh, that time and that experience, uh, putting uh, this beer together, was uh, a, was a real treat. Um, so, uh, I think part of uh, our friendship, uh, a lot of our friendship, I think, is exhibited um, uh, in this glass, and it's a, it's a real pleasure to drink it. I I really enjoy it. You know, I know. Steve might have no, some, no. some insight into it, but you know, th this hasn't been done before. So again, depending on your um, tolerance or acceptance of the the Brett characters, um, they will get stronger and, and a bit more distinctive as the beer ages. Um, you know, maybe a year, maybe two years. If, if you if you're with somebody who also is getting a bottle of beer, yeah. So I would drink one relatively soon and hang on to one. Yeah, that, that's my recommendation too. Uh, so what we did is this beer was bottled in February, and we dosed very small amounts of bread in it. And then the bread keeps going while the bottle conditioning starts. So the main yeast is the champagne yeast that does the bottle conditioning. And it takes about a month or so to get uh, to the carbonation that we wanted. We, uh, on purpose, did not carbonate it really, really sparkling because the bread will keep going and make carbon dioxide as, as, it, as it ages. Okay, so um, so this beer after it was done bottle conditioning, we put it in 55 degrees, so basically about 15 C. Um, so it be, what it does is it kind of calms down the bread, and so you should have maybe a little bit of hint of bread in the bottle, but probably nothing at this moment. Do, do, does everybody get Brettanomyces in here? Like this earthy, yeah, a hint, yeah. Um, so the the kegs were basically treated the same way. Um, but the kegs stayed warmer for a little bit longer. Usually when you do keg conditioning, it takes a little longer. And these were warm for about a month and a half. So these two weeks makes kind of a difference between nothing and a hint. Um, what we also did, like I explained earlier, is we had some bottles that we kept at about 75 degrees, so a little higher than the room temperature. Um, and their same bottling date, 
same time, the bread was just really overwhelming the beer almost. So I really don't have a good recommendation. It really depends on the temperature that you store the beer at. My recommendation would be if you have like a cold or a cool storage, put it in there. If you're going to uh, keep it at room temperature, drink it maybe in a month, two months. If you have a cooler area, you can keep it longer. Um, the funny thing about bread is that, like uh, Ken was explaining, it goes to like a roller coaster of flavors. Um, if it's about a year and a half old uh, or up to three years, to me, after three years, it kind of comes back as a, a beer. I'm, I'm not a big fan with overwhelming bread. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be honest about it. We do the same thing with saison bread that we make. We release it at three months. I think that's the perfect time. When the beer becomes six months old, it's not for me anymore. Well, when it's three years old, I like it again. Um, I'm not saying that you should keep this for three years. If you do and you open a bottle, point it away from you. <laughs> we don't want any, uh, any claims here. Um, but just to make sure it will carbonate and it will keep carbonating, it might be really, really carbonated, especially if you keep it at room temperature for a year. Yeah, the, the bottles can hold a lot of pressure, but I'm not 100% sure that it will. So. I recommend that you, that you drink one here in the, in the next coming weeks, and then you might hold on to one. And depending on how much, it's, the, how much you like bread or you don't like it, yeah. because really it's going to be completely funky. Uh, and I like all the different layers that the beer has. If you like funkiness, then you hold on to it. When you're mixing barrels, is the idea to get barrels that are more congruent in flavor profile, or do you kind of just those different flavors? Uh, the question was, how do you, the, the different flavors in the barrels, how, what are you selecting and, and why? I think it depends on uh, the end game. Uh, if you're looking um, at doing uh, a beer similar to what we served last night at an event, uh, which was a chocolate stout uh, that was aged in bourbon barrels you want. Uh, we, we wanted everything to be very consistent. They were all aged in the same uh, wood, all, all in bourbon, and, and we were looking for um, uh, commonality in the flavors uh, from the barrels. In, in a beer like this, we were looking for all kinds of different flavor attributes, all positive, obviously. That's why we didn't select all of the barrels. Uh, we were looking for flavors that would marry well together in the blend um, and give the levels of complexity uh, that you're tasting. So it just kind of depends on the project uh, that you're working on. I just want to add to that. There was a question earlier about barrel aging. If you talk to a winemaker and you ask them why do you put your wine in a barrel, they'll ask you, they'll tell you, well, one, we want the oak flavor, two, we want micro-oxygenation, and three, we want bugs, maybe they want bugs that are living in there and do good, good things for their wine if they want that. Well, the, the aspect is micro-oxygenation. Um, we, we try not to put pale beers in there because they will oxidize and what you get out of it is just paper and you know, the oxidation flavors that you really don't want. So that's one of the reasons why this beer is a darker beer because they, they protect better to, against oxidation and they, some of the flavors that you get really um, advanced oxidation might be a little more uh, wine-like or Madeira-like, and those are good aspects that you want in a darker beer, but you don't want the paper in a pale beer. You know. So what we did was um, in this uh, blending. Um, oh, did you have a question? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Sort of a follow-up question to the barrels. Which barrels 
I have my list and I forgot to write on there which ones made it and which ones not. Um, but I kind of know more or less. I, I remember that there was a, initially we did not want uh, all the whiskey barrels to go through because we thought that the whiskey flavor was going to be too much. In the end we did because some of the wine barrels that we had um, had some off flavors. If you open, we really when you when you put beer in a barrel, you can get sulfur off flavors. You can get acetaldehyde off flavors. You can get, and those were rejected right away. And we had kind of too many of those. Otherwise, we wanted to have this beer to be a 50-50 blend, no matter what. And uh, so we had to we selected. We had made a selection, then we went back, and then we found some of the barrels having a buck, and they were rejected. So in the end, we had to use um, some some that we rejected early that were clean microbiologically. You know, I, I mean, that's a great question, and I think it's very interesting, uh, kind of what I said before. Uh, I think, you know, we as brewers, what we did, well, Ken did 30 years ago, and we did 23 years ago or whatever, is we look to recreate a lot of stuff from the past. And um, so we did that, and but we applied a lot of modern, I mean, you know, uh, we, we, a lot of us use the word handcrafted. Well, if you go to Sierra Nevada's brewery or our brewery, there probably is advanced automation as any brewery in the world. And so, yeah, we don't have a guy stirring the pot, but, you know, where it makes sense, I think, we really look at these old um, aspects to brewing, but you apply all this modern technology that we have I mean, I believe going forward, and I don't, I don't know about Sierra Nevada, but I'll just speak for us, we, are, we believe that we can uh, take some of the trial and error out of these things as we go forward and create a better mousetrap. You know, that we can make, we can take the good stuff, back, you know, 150 years ago, they had to take the good with the bad. They had to take the great beer with the vinegar. But... You know, today I think we can really work to isolate and use, you know, science and technology to really create something wonderful and reproducible and something that, even though it may change, it'll be a predictable change. And so, and I don't know, maybe Ken wants to talk about it, but that, that's kind of where I see it going. And I see it being a huge thing because... You know, the wine industry, like I said, I think got way ahead of us. And I think now... Yeah. I think there's plenty of room, you know, to go. I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of experimentation going on today. And, and uh, anyway, maybe Ken wants to speak to that. Yeah, and as, as John mentioned, the, the mixing the um, high-tech knowledge we have today, I mean, we've got some of the more sophisticated breweries in the world, um, but 
we've taken that and applied it to traditional old, old world brewing uh, ideals. So um, you know, we don't, uh, when well, we still have open fermenters, I'm building a new brewery in Asheville, I'm putting in some open fermenters, um, and, and not that they're the most efficient or modern way to go, but the beer coming out of them has different characters. So we can you know, take what we know about brewing and science and microbiology and uh, apply that to um, you know, very strict traditional brewing ideals and produce wonderful beers that are you know, better, I'm sure, than what was produced 50 or 100 years ago just because we understand now the impacts of oxygen and iron and copper and all these, these metals that, that have negative attributes to beer. Um, we understand that today, and, and the science wasn't there uh, 50 years ago. So, uh, but, but going to the barrel thing, I mean, the, the barrel aging aspect, and, and they've experienced, we've experienced, it, it throws a wild card into your program. And uh, it can be a good wild card or a bad wild card, but it, it's a, a much less predictable approach to, to brewing. And, and it's great to do for fun projects and for smaller runs. And, but, but having an all-wooden brewery in today's world uh, for any of us would be so daunting that um, you know, it would be you know, pretty disastrous, I think, to manage as a company. So we can play with those things, and we, we love to do it, and it allows us to, uh, to see what you know, happens. But to, to base your whole business on that at our scale is really pretty impractical. Um, if you're a little 10-barrel brewery, you could maybe build a business around all wild and funky beers. And you know, we've got good friends in the industry who make some of the finest wild beers in the, the world, but it's still a limited part of their business. They realize that they need something more predictable for their, their bread and butter. Yeah, I'm going to speak to that. Um, we're actually going to build a brewery there, also. So no. So yeah, yeah, no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just kidding. Uh, um, we, we looked for a while at a, a location on the East Coast somewhere. Transportation costs and energy involved in transporting beers is, you know, a, a very high uh, input, and we we really wanted to minimize that. So, uh, for us, it was an extremely big decision. We didn't take it lightly. Our Chico plant was, was starting to, to bump up on capacity and we needed to do something and adding more capacity in Chico just really didn't make sense to, to do that and then ship beer across country. Our second biggest market is New York and uh, there's a, you know, a lot of fuel that goes uh, to get beer to New York. Um, the, the area is beautiful. Uh, it's got great water. Um, it's got a, a fairly vibrant um, uh, downtown and, and uh, culture around beer. There's a dozen, at least a dozen breweries currently there, and, and besides New Belgium and Oscar Blues and ourselves uh, moving into the area. Um, so we were looking for a place that was uh, embraced sort of our ideals. It's got a lot, a lot of outdoor activities. There's you know, a lot of cycling and river rafting and, and things that, that we align with. Um, and you know, it was a place that we thought our employees would want to live and, and some place that I would want to build a, a company. So. Uh, we bought 185 acres on the French Broad River, so we've got a, a, a neat site that's got almost three-quarters of a mile of river frontage, and you can kayak to the brewery and, and have a beer. Uh, but we're uh, in the midst of construction. We started uh, grading a few weeks ago. We'll start digging footings here in the next month or so, and um, I'm on my way to Germany on Sunday to hopefully finalize buying a, a new brew house. So we're moving quickly. Um, and. It's at this point, we can't brew any more beer really out of our Chico plant. We're running 24-7, and uh, so it'll be an interesting next year and a half. 
two more questions before we have to go. So um, with the beer, if you were to make this again, are there things as brewers that you would go back and change? Mm. Yeah, no, well, no barrels. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that you could recreate it even if you tried to. Uh, there were so many unique things that went into it. Uh, that uh, I mean, it would be it would be a monumental undertaking to even try. But uh, I was just thinking about that when we were having the uh, the uh, burn ends. Uh, I think maybe it might have been nice to put a little bit of smoke malt in there. That might have been kind of a nice thing. Uh, a little yeah, small. a little bit. Yeah. What do you think? Maybe. Do you think we should make it again? I buy it. Okay. <laughs> So we get one person who buys it? <laughs> so, so I just wanted to, did everybody uh, like the beer? Yeah. Oh, good. You're great. I, I guess that's, that's, uh, that's important. You know, uh, it's funny, when you work in a brewery, it's like I'm sure all of you struggle at whatever jobs you have and whatever you do. And, and I think breweries are no different. We, we have bad days and... And um, recently we had a plant meeting, and, it, and, it, and I was all kind of stressed out that day. And then it occurred to me that we make beer for a living, you know? <laughs> it's like, why should I be fretting so much? But um, so anyway, I reminded all our employees that... Could be worse. Could yeah, could be... Toilet plungers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but at least nobody wants to be in that business. <laughs> Any more questions? Well, right. we, we, have the, we have the beer on the floor also, and it's paired with, uh, I think, salumi, I think. Salumi. Yeah. So, yeah, come see us. We're uh, in the middle of the circle, so come see us if you want another glass of this. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And don't forget to take your coasters with you when you head on out of here. Thank you for listening to the Saver Salon. Craft Beer Radio is a mostly weekly beer podcast where we attempt to educate and entertain. If you haven't heard our podcast, we invite you to find us in iTunes or go to our website, craftbeerradio.com. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. Please visit craftbeerradio.com for more information.